But God was pursuing me this whole time and my parents were praying and they had lots of people praying with them. And this began to be a supernatural miracle that just unfolded that no one could have um, seen coming. God did what no one could do and he radically transformed my life. That's Laura Perry Smaltz talking about her incredibly powerful story. She was living as a transgendered man for seven years until God radically healed and renewed her heart. And I can't wait to share about her inspiring transformation and her insights into what gender-confused people and, frankly, their parents really need to know about the dangers and the disappointments that come from medical gender transition treatments. Welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly, a podcast production from Focus on the Family. I am excited to share these kinds of conversations with you on Refocus because our world is hurting and these are complex, difficult issues. There's so much gender confusion in the culture right now, and it's important that we do everything we can to help people know how much God cares for them and can begin to work in their hearts. You're going to hear that from Laura. And by the way, if you want to continue the conversation and hear more about current events and Christianity in the culture, check out my daily blog. You can sign up for my newsletter, read, and make comments right there. Those details are in the show notes. Now, this is one of the most important conversations going on in the culture today, and I'm excited again to talk about it on Refocus. It is a heavy topic, and I hear from so many people who are concerned about the gender movement, the identity crisis going on right now in so many people, uh, especially kids of parents who are connected to focus on the family. Uh, These parents especially are worried about their children making good, solid, biblically informed decisions, and uh, they're concerned that the decisions they're making will negatively impact them for the rest of their life. And that certainly is true of gender transition issues, medical or hormonal treatments, uh, surgeries that are really debilitating these people for the rest of their lives. In this episode, I talked with Laura Perry Smaltz about her journey back to the Lord and what she learned about the power of sharing the truth in love. And it's really a testimony to her mom, which gets my heart. Moms are awesome. Today, she works with families, helping them understand and navigate gender confusion. She's also happily married to a man named Perry. So God has really done a work in her life. And I just say, God bless you, man. Wonderful that the two of them found each other. Laura is joined by Dr. Meg Meeker, who will add her knowledge and experience and compassion to the conversation. Dr. Meeker is a pediatrician and an expert on raising healthy children. She's talked with hundreds of parents about gender identity issues and the damage of medical transition. Laura's amazing story is captured in her book, Transgender to Transformed, a story of transition that will truly set you free. And you can get that directly directly from us here at Focus on the Family. You'll find the link in the program notes. Now here's my recent conversation with Laura Perry Smaltz and Dr. Meg Meeker on Refocus with Jim Daly. Dr. Meeker and Laura, welcome to Refocus. I so appreciate you being with us. Great to be with you, Jim. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Let's start with you, Dr. Meeker. Uh, More and more young people, especially girls, are experiencing gender confusion. Uh, Ten years ago, I think the prevalence of transgenderism, if I could call it that, in children was like 0.1%. And now it's 2 to 3% according to different surveys. I think that's about a 4,000% increase. Just generally, what's going on? 
You know, when physicians like myself, because I talked to a lot of them, first experienced this explosion of transgenderism, our mouths drop open and we looked at each other and thought, what is happening? And I say, you know, I've been doing this 35 years. Have you ever seen this to my colleagues? And they said, absolutely not. I really do think that it has uh, arisen out of a phenomenon we've seen occurring over the past 15 or 20 years, and that is redefining sexuality. And then once you redefine sexuality, where do you go from that? Then you redefine gender. And I really believe that our culture is doing that because we see problems in our kids and we want to give them a quick answer. Well, if you have depression or if you have this, then and you think about the fact that you might want to be a boy if you're a girl and um, vice versa, here's the answer. Go do it. And life isn't that simple. So I really think mm. that it's a result of this desire in our country to emasculate, take away, away femininity, redefine sexuality, and now redefine gender. And it's very confusing for kids. Absolutely. And, you know, the follow-up on that uh, with our audience, I'm not sure how many people are familiar with this. It's not in their day-to-day -day lives. So if you could just give us a quick tutorial when you look at uh, the treatments and what is happening to these children. Um, you know, some is surgical, some is hormonal. So describe for us, if you're a little girl and you your parents decide this is the treatment for you and their doctor complies, what does that mean for her? And then give us the opposite with boys. What are they doing either surgically or uh, through pharmaceuticals to do something? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I want to say this is pushed by parents and adults. It is not pushed by kids. Well, in schools. Um, well, in schools, correct. Yeah, wow. But I mean the child. If the child has feelings that he wants to be a girl or a girl wants to be a boy, they're not the ones who will say, I want to go do this. I want to go do this. They need adult manipulation in their lives, either from teachers or from parents. And my experience has been that it's predominantly the parents who drive this. But here's what's happened. When a, a kid is, you know, anywhere from five to 10 years old, and they start thinking that it would be nice to be, if she's a girl, boy, you know, boys really have it all over girls. This is, look what they get to do that we don't get to do. And, and boys will feel the same way. Then they move into puberty and they've uh, fostered these feelings for a while. And then they hear all around them, gee whiz, if you have these feelings for a long period of time, that's who you are. That's who you're meant to be. So you need to do something about it. Now get this. I get so upset when I talk about this. I had a patient who was 13. I'd known her all of her life. This is typical. Huh very, very troubled family. And she decided she wanted to transition. Mom took her down to University of Michigan. And she spent three hours, two hours interviewing um, sociologists, psychologists, whatever, one hour with the gender clinic doctor came home with testosterone. Three hours. And I'd known this kid all of her life. So next time I saw her, her voice had changed. Fundamentally, what happens is that Physicians want to get kids before they hit puberty, so they stall puberty. They literally stop it. So for girls, that means giving them testosterone, which has problems. For boys, that means giving them estrogen and progesterone. Now, when you do that, when you interrupt puberty, 
um, in a teenager, we don't know long-term what is gonna happen, but we do know there's a very high rate of infertility that goes along with it. And then once kids are on that, then they have the option of undergoing surgery, hysterectomy for girls. Um, they can actually have, um, you know, their penis is taken off, they can have castration. And that usually comes later in the teen years. But what ends up happening is that these kids end up in a place where they can't have children and they can't have a healthy sex life. So we're bringing them into no man's land. If I could, I had a patient sitting on my um, table, had menstrual problems. She was transitioning to be a boy. She had a beard and this kind of thing. She's having menstrual problems. And I said, well, here's the answer. We can put you on estrogen and progesterone. She goes, well, I'm already on it. And she goes, but I'm already on testosterone too. I said, who put you on that? And she said, well, this clinic, I have never looked at a patient and literally not known what to do. I didn't even know where to find the answer. So huh. it's, we're leading kids. And then there, there's also data on all the physical problems that happen, their bone issues, their, their, there's a syndrome where it sort of imitates a brain tumor, if you will. This is very, very serious medical intervention. Well, again, I appreciate that foundation because I think it's critical to know, and we're going to you know, ask more questions down the line here in this program about those things. Uh, Europe has experienced certain things. I'm going to talk to you about that. But let me bring Laura in. Laura, it's so good to have you on the program. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think Dr. Meeker's done a wonderful job kind of laying the, the kind of macro groundwork for what's going on in the culture, et cetera. But this was you. This is part of your story, and you pursued it. And, you know, in the end, you've uh, changed back to your biological sex. I think we all realize that. But I do want to hear your story because it's so powerful. Tell us about your childhood, what was going on, the feelings you had, maybe some of the contributing factors. This is a big question, and it's going to take a big answer. But just take your time and go through it. What was happening for you? What were those big flags that led you to the things you did to your body? You know, and when I when I transitioned initially, I would have said I was born that way. I've always had these feelings. I this is just who I am. I, I really saw no connection. But now in hindsight, I it's like, oh my goodness, I can see where these lies really developed. It started very early in childhood. And I really misunderstood things with my mom. Um, I've blamed her a lot in my past, but now that I'm older, I have so much grace for her and I understand the struggles and her own brokenness. Um, but, but as a child, we had a very difficult relationship. She was much closer to my brother and we were very different in personality. Like he was very quiet, very obedient, kind of the golden child. And I was very kind of obnoxious and hyper. I had a ton of energy, very loud. Um, and she was going through so much stress. And I remember, like, if I picture my mom from childhood, I just see her stressed out. She was burned out. Um, and she said she was always on this performance treadmill for God, trying so hard in her own flesh to please God. Huh. Um, but I began to interpret that as mom loves my brother more than me. And so at a very early age, I began to um, wish that I had been a boy. And then I found out she'd miscarried two boys between us. And it was like, well, mom wished I had been one of the boys instead. And so like Dr. Meeker was talking about, I began to foster those feelings at a very young age. And I used to write stories about me being a boy and I invented this sort of male alter ego and I didn't tell anybody. 
Um, but I, I fostered that for years. And then I was molested at eight years old and the sexual confusion on top of all that just really began to, um, to drive this desire home. And I, I felt like being a girl was insecure, like a, um, vulnerable. And um, I felt like men had the power and I was just, you know, good to be used and thrown away. Yeah, Laura, and- let me let me interrupt because I want to bring Megan on that. That's a very common story and it's a tragic story. I don't want to, you know, make too light of that. I mean, a, a sexual experience at a young age, abusive experience. And I think that was another young boy who, if I remember your story correctly. So it wasn't coming from an adult male or something like that, which is also unfortunately so common. But Meg, speak to that with the patients that you've seen. How often uh, is is there a sexual abuse situation that kind of triggers some of this for some of those patients? And I ask this because so often as I communicate with people in the LGBT community, they want to play this down, that it wasn't a triggering event. And that's not my story. And yes, things happen, but that's not why I am who I am. And I just want to illuminate that a little bit because so often the tragedy and what breaks my heart is it is part of the story. When I get to know these people, and they do tell me eventually, yeah, I was molested as an eight, nine, ten-year-old. Speak to the power of that situation. Yeah, you know, we don't really know any statistics about um, sexual abuse in people who want to transition. However, I can tell you this: the rates of depression and suicidal ideation for those who are going to transition is very, very high. And given what we know about sexual abuse statistics in the general population, it is going to be very high in those who want to transition as well. When a a child or a woman, uh, a girl is sexually molested, it hits to the very depth of who she is. I really believe it, it cracks into her soul. And there's tremendous pain, tremendous uh, psychological pain, but I also think spiritual pain. And I do think that the devil gets in there and if he can mold, if he can fiddle with your sexuality, he can take every part of you down because your sexuality is related to every part of who you are, your personality, your feelings, um, your physical being, every part of you. And so I think that we underestimate the pain and the destruction to a child when they're sexually abused. And I want to say for boys as well, you know, masculinity is a huge part of who they are growing up. And if they are molested by another boy, the the effect of that is profound on their masculinity. You know, it's been knocked down. It's been broken. Um, And so I think that when you break a person's sexual identity early on in life, that leaves them open for all sorts of other things to come in and, um, you know, upset them, disturb them, make them worse. So sexual abuse is, I'm sure, very high amongst those who want to transition because we know that depression and suicidality in the the transgender community is higher than it is in any other demographic of teens in the U.S. Yeah. Laura, let's come back to you. And I just wanted to insert that because it's so critical. And again, most of the people I know, including a woman who was a lesbian and came back to Christ, she said there was an incident where a boy simply exposed himself to her. And she translated that as power. 
He's got the power. I do not. I want to be in the power position. And she points back to that as the beginning of her attraction to women because she didn't want to be a female. She wanted to portray a, a male in that way, in the role. Um, so coming back to you, Laura, it, it, keep going into your story and let's talk about the decisions you made uh, to eventually begin hormone or surgical treatment to become a man. Yeah. And that's such a good point. I just wanted to say real quick that um, because I felt that same way that the boys had all the power. He totally rejected me after that. He was my friend's brother. And then um, I was just completely thrown away. And I remember feeling at eight years old that the boys have all the power mm. and being jealous. But I will also say um, that pornography is kind of doing the same thing. So some kids are saying I was never touched. I was never molested, anything like that. But they're either being exposed to like that or they're being exposed to pornography at very young ages. And I think it's having that same devastating effect. Mm. Um, but, but as I grew up, I was sort of living this double life and I was raised in a Christian home in a very Christian environment, but I don't remember really wanting God. I wasn't pursuing God. I was kind of felt like it was shoved down my throat, but I think so much of it was because I was living with this internal secret that was just destroying me. I felt so much guilt and shame from all of that. And I felt dirty and used even at a very young age. Um, and so I just began drifting more and more away from the Lord. And, um, and I was at 14, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And this doctor who was just very flippant was, uh, like somebody's going to have a hard time getting pregnant, you know, to a 14 year old. And I, and at the time, even though I'd struggled with wanting to be a boy all my life, I knew I was biologically female. Um, and I didn't know what to do with those feelings. I'd never, ever heard the word transgender. So that wasn't even on my radar that I, I could quote transition. So I remember feeling like, okay, God's given me this body that I don't want in the first place. And my mother didn't want me in my mind. She did. She loved me very much, but in my mind. And then, so, but it's not even working properly. And I began to get really angry with God. And I began to get in a lot of sexual sin. And I didn't realize the brokenness that was going to bring in my life. I thought God just didn't want me to have fun. Um, but it began to really fracture my identity and my worth and my value. And I felt like women had absolutely no value. And that's really what made the, um, when I began to make the decision to transition, I look back on childhood and it's like, I've always felt like a boy. The reason this never works out is because I was meant to be the man. If I was a man, I, I know how to treat a woman. And so that's really where that started. How old were you then when uh, you made the decision to surgically make changes? And, you know, to the degree you can explain that, please, so the audience understands what you've gone through. Yeah, I was 25. And one of the first things I had to do, I'd gone to a support group because I'd never even heard this until I looked it up on Google. And so they, they told me about the WPATH standards and this is how you sort of transition and I was required to go to three one-hour counseling sessions, which they don't even do that in a lot of states now. Um, but in the third session, the therapist realized that I had all these problems with my mom and problems in childhood. And she said, wow, you really have issues with your mom. And I was stunned. I was like, whoa, wait, how did we get talking about this? And I blew up at her. I said, I'm not here to talk about my mom. And I just, um, I really said, I don't want to talk about that. And so she said, you're just here to get this diagnosis. I said, yes, that's all I'm here for. And she said, okay. And she just gave me this letter stating I'd been diagnosed with gender identity disorder, which is what it was before it was gender dysphoria. And then um, I took this to my doctor that I'd been seeing for for years. And I'd never said anything about this. And all of a sudden I have this diagnosis. And he's, 
um, he asked me something like, are you sure this is what you want to do? Yes, this is what I want to do. And he said, okay. And he started me on testosterone that day. Wow. I mean, that's kind of what Meg Meeker was talking about. And Dr. Meeker, I mean, that description that Laura's giving of the office visit and the lack of digging and the lack of understanding, I would think uh, with that counselor, for example, with Laura, she should have really insisted, let's dig into those issues with your mom and let's discover maybe where some of this was derailed for you. And then you can decide where things go from there. But there's not even that kind of retrospection, is there? No. And one of the things that concerns me the most is that kids are coming forward wanting to transition for a reason. And the reason isn't just that they feel like they should be a boy. And incidentally, more girls want to be boys than boys to girls. But we never get to those issues. We never get to those problems. We slap an answer on. And it's really painful and hard for the people who transition because once they've transitioned kids i'm talking about and they move into their 20s the rates of suicide and depression are much higher in them than the general public unfortunately the medical community is drinking the kool-aid the ama the american academy of pediatrics and um, american board of internal medicine all say that we need to gender confirm. We need to confirm a gender identity. And then if we don't, then we're going to get a big slap on the wrist. And it's phenomenal to me that we've come to a place where good physicians believe that the answer to children's problems is to give them hormones, interrupt puberty, and cut off their genitalia. God help us. But these poor kids don't get their issues attended to. You know, it's it's like putting on a, a, a big, huge Band-Aid. Um, depression and suicidality are very high in the LGBT community. And it's kind of like a chicken or an egg. What came first, the depression and suicidality or, you know, the, the gender dysphoria? But we never we never care enough to find out. So that's very disturbing to me. The medical community is all over this. They're yeah. buying into it. Let me let me put a data point in there. And Laura, I mean, you're living it. So jump in, either one of you on this. But 70 to 90 percent of gender confused children and and teens will self-correct by 19 years old. And to me, that that's been the moral outrage for me that in these elementary schools with school administrators and counselors, they're taking these young children and affirming something that 70 to 90% of those kids will grow out of once they understand their brains are more mature, et cetera. And they're imprisoning them, guiding them down this path of ruin and regret. Right. I think, you know, if I hadn't, um, gotten into so much sexual sin. I had kind of grown out of it a little bit in high school. I don't know how much I really thought about it. Again, if I, I hadn't heard the word. So I think if I'd been in this culture, I would have been screaming at eight, nine years old that this is who I am and I've got to transition. But um, I, I don't remember having those feelings as much in high school. Um, but then I looked back on everything. And if I had gotten help at that time that I needed it, if I had done it God's way and not gotten into all this sexual sin that led to so much more brokenness, um, so I actually, I think that is really true that I think a lot of kids grow out of this. 
Um, but now the studies are showing the total opposite. If they are socially affirmed and put on puberty blockers, um, 90 to 100% are now wanting to medically transition. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, again, it's it's affirming something that if time were given, they most likely would not choose those things as a 20, 21-year-old typically. Um, uh, Dr. Meeker, what are the, the hormones, again, just refresh our memory, the hormone treatment, its impact. I know you touched on it, but now we're into it. Um, there's no long-term studies. You look at places in Europe like Tavistock, Norway, Sweden, Finland, UK, they're all kind of shutting down mm -hmm. treatments for minors. Yeah. They seem to have come to their senses regarding this, declaring that we do not see any scientific evidence that these treatments are helpful to children. Mm -hmm. And there's no long-term studies that give us indication of that. Now, that seems reasonable. They should have never gone down that path in the first mm -hmm. place, but at least they have the wits to say, wait a minute, we're doing more harm than good. And then here in the US, we're creating transgendered sanctuary cities where people mm -hmm. can come and get these surgeries. It's, it's so foolish of America mm -hmm. to not look at Europe and say, what's their experience and why are we going the other way? Because mm -hmm. we believe we're more sophisticated and more modern. Um, the, the hormones that you would give a boy are estrogen and progesterone, which are basically birth control pills. So you're basically giving birth control pills to a 10 or 11 year old boy. Um, and then with girls, you're giving them testosterone, which is the male hormone to either block puberty or to um, shut it down once the process has started in girls. We do know that when you give testosterone to girls, you have, there's, there's bone density issues. You sort of leach the calcium out of your bone. You make them a lot weaker. We also know that there's something called pseudotumor cerebri, which is um, basically a syndrome where your body thinks it has a brain tumor and it mimics brain tumor symptoms. These are very, very serious issues. We also know that these hormones have a profound effect on your emotions. Um, many adult women can't take birth control pills because it makes them very, very depressed. And so, you know, we're really not just messing with kids' hormones. We're messing with their muscles, their bones, their brains, their feelings. We're messing with everything. And we're causing these people very high in incidence of infertility. What 10, 15, even 18-year-old person can make a decision, a lifelong decision about whether or not they want to have children. They can't because their brains aren't developed. And that's very well accepted. I just wanted to say one other thing about the treatment here. Physicians have always prided themselves on making sure that the treatments we give are almost 100% effective and they have minimal side effects. That's why drugs go through such um, you know, ardent screening, the FDA, they need to be approved. The exact opposite is happening here with progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone. There hasn't been any screening or proof at all. And there's no other medical situation that I can think of that's like this, where we just give somebody a medication and hope it does what it's supposed to do. You'd never come into a doctor's office and he says, I have, you have pneumonia, um, let me give this antibiotic a try. I hope it works. You'd never do that ever. And yet we're giving treatments to kids we know that have lifelong consequences. 
and yet we really don't know what the outcome is. To me, that's medical malpractice. Yeah, absolutely. Laura, back to your story, because you were a little lighter in making that decision in your 20s, but describe what you took, the impact that it had on you, even how that impact continues today. Yeah, I, I started on very high doses of testosterone. And within maybe a month, I don't remember the exact timing, but my voice began to get a lot lower. It was a lot lower then than it is now, um, you know, and began to really grow a little bit of facial hair. The facial hair took several years, but even certain things like my jawline began to um, look a little sharper. This, the fat sort of redistributes from what I've been told. I, I, mean, I could see those changes, but um, it looked like my hips began to get narrow. Um, but really over time, it was like every little process, every, every little change was such a huge affirmation. And I was, I was aware in one sense that this is all fake, but every little step seems to get you closer to that goal. And so you keep thinking that the next change will make it feel more real. And so then I had my, my name legally changed in uh, 2009. And then I had my first surgery and I had a double mastectomy in 2009, uh, later that September. And it was like, you know, every step along this way seems to be getting close to that goal. But then I remember after my chest surgery being extremely depressed. I, well, I was excited at first because I liked the results, you know, and I was like, this is amazing. This is everything I've ever wanted. But then um, after maybe a few weeks later, a couple months later, I was like, wait a minute, this this didn't make me a man. And it was confusing because it made me legally male. But um, I, I realized that even women had mastectomies and this didn't make me a man. But, yeah. you know, over the years, um, as I continued to transition, you know, more and more steps toward this, um, I eventually had a hysterectomy, I had the ovaries removed, and um, I began to have a lot of cognitive problems. And I began to have um, a lot of memory and focus problems. I began having a lot of trouble at work. And so I didn't even know then the, the dangers of all this, but I do know that my blood started getting so thick that my doctor was making me go to have therapeutic blood withdrawals to, to thin the blood. Yeah, that was probably a doctor maker, mostly from the mm -hmm. testosterone treatment, I would think. Yes, and think about this. When you do a hysterectomy and you take the ovaries out of a girl, you throw her into menopause suddenly, because that's what menopause is. And emotionally, most women can't handle that because you become depressed, you get hot flashes, you can't sleep. It, it feels miserable. And to do that to a young person and to do something irreversibly, but not even tell, did they put you on estrogen and progesterone after they did the hysterectomy and oophorectomy? No, and I wouldn't have taken it because all I wanted was the testosterone. Right. I, that was the reason I wanted the hysterectomy because I was trying to get rid of anything female. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want female hormones at all, but I had, I, I wasn't prepared at all for what menopause would be like. Um, I had hot flashes in here. Well, I was at a job where I was only known as male. They didn't know I was trans. And I was having hot flashes in this office. And most of the girls had, um, the office was very cold. So they would have heaters and blankets and stuff sometimes. And, and here I was burning up with a fan and my ears would turn bright red. And I remember my boss on more than one occasion looking at me and my name was Jake at the time saying, Jake, um, what's wrong with you? Your ears are bright red. Are you Okay. And um, but just the depression. And I didn't even realize that not sleeping well was part of that. There were so many nights I could not get to sleep before about 3 a.m. And I was just exhausted all the time. 
Laura, let me ask you now, we, we've covered the physical quite well, I think, and hopefully given some people some insight. Now let's move more into that emotional, spiritual realm where you described it so well, where you felt like you were getting a handle on this, that your body was finally taking the shape that you had wanted since you were a child, it sounded like. And um, in that regard, when did the dent become more palpable for you? When did you start going, okay, wait a minute, this isn't what I want, this isn't who I am, this isn't my identity? And where did God show up in all of that discussion? Yeah, it really started um, after my hysterectomy. And I, I didn't even realize depression was part of menopause. Um, but I started getting extremely depressed. And I realized that as I started looking into the genital reassignment surgery options, I was horrified when I realized how fake it all was and that it was never going to be real. And I remember being so broken and so... Um, just crushed because no one had ever told me that this was not ever going to be real, that I could have this appearance of a man. And I had this job where I was only known as a male. I passed pretty well in society, um, but I knew the truth inside. And I've realized, one, there were tons of complications with these surgeries. Some have had um, where it, uh, lots of bladder and urethra problems and leakage and um, tissue necrosis and all kinds of other problems. Um, but on top of that, at the time, some of the statistics were saying 40 to 60% would never have any sexual feeling again. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that I could not ever be a man. And that's when that depression really started to set in because I realized this was always going to be fake. But there was so much pain in being a woman. And I didn't know why. I didn't know why every time I thought about being a woman, I just would have rather died. And so I, I sort of was trudging through life. And I remember getting extremely restless. I wasn't sleeping well. I was playing video games for hours and hours and hours on end. And I, um, I remember just kind of pacing around my apartment and trying so hard um, to, to find happiness through, I was just entertaining myself to death. And I remember thinking, there's got to be more to life than this. I, I was so um, frustrated, but I thought it's not Christianity because I grew up in that. And I'd, I'd had this very legalistic sense of Christianity I didn't understand. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know that I'd never truly been saved and filled with the Spirit of God. I didn't know that I'd never known Jesus. And so what I what I knew was that religion wasn't the answer. But um, as but God was pursuing me this whole time, and my parents were praying, and they had lots of people praying with them. And this began to be a supernatural miracle that just unfolded that no one could have um, seen coming. And really, when I look back, I, I've attributed various programs and different things that had an influence on me. My mom ended up having a great influence on me. Um, but really, there were lots of things that God used. But the, one of the most profound, so my mom had had this, um, you know, like I said, she was so stressed out, so burned out. But as she really began to surrender her life more to the control of the Holy Spirit, to let him work in her life, and she really surrendered me into, into God's hands and just began to trust the Lord and she quit trying to fix me, quit focusing on my sin and let the Lord shine his light into her own heart. So she began to be transformed. One day the Lord opened my eyes to how much my mom had been transformed. And that's when I knew the gospel was true. It's like, wow, Christ is alive. Because I could see that after 40, 50 years of her trying to fix herself, all of a sudden my mom was changing. And when I saw the peace and the faith in my mom, and again, God used many, many, many other things. So it's not like if someone doesn't have that relationship with their child right now, 
And God brought this back and forth all the time. There are times I'd cut them off and I'd come back and I'd cut them off and I'd come back. So just the power of prayer did what God did, what no one could do. And he radically transformed my life. Wow. But you have said so much in that segment right there. Uh, there's so much to kind of go over and unpack. But uh, And again, Meg, I want you to jump in because you're sitting and counseling parents with their children as a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. But Laura, the... Uh, in that regard, um, the one thing I want to highlight there is your mom's perspective. And I think this is true for all of us as parents, especially Christian parents. We carry such a heavy burden. I'm sure she's thinking, what did I do wrong? How did I fail you, Lord? My daughter's transgendered, right? I mean, I did something maybe. And um, to begin to let go of that is so critically important. And I think the reason I want to highlight it is I'm sure there are parents listening that are living without letting that go and giving it to God. And they're still trying to control and cajole and correct, probably with great emotion. And so describe, if you could, Laura and, and Dr. Meeker, expand on it after Laura addresses this. But the, the importance of you feeling accepted, maybe not affirmed in what you were portraying, but you must have felt like your parents loved you and they were in your corner, even though they didn't agree with what you were doing. And, and how did that feel and play out for you? And then Meg, with all the patients and the parents that you deal with, jump on it. So Laura, speak to that criticality. Yeah, I, I think this is the beauty of the gospel. Because the reality is, you know, my mom did hurt me in a lot of ways, but we are all sinners. We're all sinners raising other sinners. None of us were ever going to be the perfect parent. And even if we could have been, which none of us could be, God was the perfect parent. I mean, he's parents to us all, but with Adam and Eve, who had no earthly parents, they were in a perfect environment, no war, no disease, nothing had ever hurt them. They didn't have any kind of brokenness, and yet they still rebelled. And so, but the reality is that a lot of kids that struggle with transgender do have issues with their parents. But one thing that God revealed to me is that children have, we're all created for the Garden of Eden. We don't have this expectation of being hurt, of being um, Mm. disappointed by our parents. Our parents could never be perfect. And so what my mom didn't said, she could have been, you know, and was for years, tried to fix me. And I think she realized her mistakes. And so she kept trying to fix it. But when she realized she couldn't fix it, really gave control to the Lord. And then he ended up using her because she pursued the Lord. And God gave her the opportunity to be part of his redemption story in me. But it was not her story. She was not the one who could fix me, but the Lord could. And when she, God allowed her to be part of that story. And that's what I think is so beautiful. So no matter what you've done, because I guarantee you, every parent listening to this, and I've talked to Hundreds of parents, every parent listening to this has made mistakes. I've made mistakes. I'm a new stepmom now, you know, so I, none of us are ever going to be perfect, but the beauty of the gospel is that this can be redeemed, that God can heal and God can restore. And that's the power of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Dr. Meg, just that spectrum of patients that you see, the kids and their parents and the dysfunction, I'm sure you may not always comment on it in your medical office, but you probably... It makes an impact on you where parents are doing it well and where they're doing it not so well. Kind of give us a little tutorial on what you've seen as a physician. Um, You're absolutely right. And I love that we're talking so openly about this. What I keep seeing and hearing um, is that there's tremendous amount of pain underneath. 
And I think that a lot of times it's easier for um, adults or young adults to go, that's my parents. My parents did it. My parents are responsible. Well, maybe, but maybe not. But we need to teach young kids that that pain and hardship is part of life. And this is what we have to just learn how to deal with. Now, what I have found, and maybe it's too simplistic, but it's so I like to think, and I've seen so many kids over the years, but when you begin to restore the, a relationship between a mom and a child or a dad and a child, and you work to really start to connect them back, so much of this begins to fall away. It doesn't all fall away, but it begins to, because the answer in any trouble and confusion is relationship because we're born for relationship first with God and then with our parents. And so to sort of say that all these other things are the answer to that pain, because every transgender person um, is in tremendous amount of pain, at least the kids who are, who, who are transitioning, which we never attend to it. But the answer is that if you help parents begin to understand their kids, reconnect with their kids, listen to their kids, pay attention to their kids, which I think is a huge reason why we have so much depression, anxiety is that people, you know, our, our kids live so autonomously, you've got family units living in under the same roof, but they're not really connected at all. Mm. And I think that when you disconnect a child from a parent, and you tell them that the reason for their angst is something else and you put an answer to that something else it never works so one of the things i always try hard to do no matter what and i've seen a lot of high-risk teens suicidal teens pull a parent in pull a parent in and gently begin to help them understand and empathize with their kid and even if they just learn to do that because once you begin to restore that relationship so much else falls into place because relationship in our lives is what life is all about. You know, the difficulty with that, even if you're not dealing with sexual issues with a child, I've seen it in my wife and I with our two boys. They're 22 and 20 now. There comes a point where you've got to let go. And if you don't let go, there's a mess, uh, especially, I would say, raising boys. I mean, they were trying to become independent as teenagers. And man, the difficulties that we encounter, especially with our oldest. And it doesn't have to, again, to be a sexually oriented issue. Um, we just need to parent better, knowing that we cannot, as Christian parents, control the outcome. There's predictability. You want to raise them in a loving home. All the predictive models suggest when you do that, they're going to be healthy and successful and all the things you're hoping for. But if you are a hard parent and somehow that can come across as unloving, like Laura's hinted to, uh, you know, you've got to reassess that and understand what Jesus wants from you as a parent. And Laura, I think in that regard, um, your parents' ability to love you and not affirm, uh, you know, your sexual issues. Talk about that balance for us and for those parents listening about how to do that well, because it, it doesn't come naturally. We do have to think about doing that so that we can hopefully save our children. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and I think this is one of the beauties of this is this is all about the work of the Lord and his um, work in our hearts and in our children's lives. So we're going to make mistakes, but God's going to use this anyway. And 
you know, he said that um, in Romans 8, it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are who, who are called according to his purpose. And I look back and even some of the mistakes my parents made, God used those things anyway. But even as they they refused to um, call me Jake, they didn't use the male pronouns. And I was so angry, but I knew they loved me. In fact, one of the times that I felt most loved by them was the night that I came out and I was so emotional and I was um, just kind of screaming and, you know, you have to affirm this is who I am. And I remember them weeping and so broken and just crying and saying, we will do anything. We will get you help. You know, we'll get you counseling. Um, you know, let us let, let's try to balance your hormones for a few months before you try this. Maybe maybe there's a hormone balance issue um, and all these things. And I remember being angry and I was thinking, I wish they didn't love me so much because I just want to go do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would tell them how hateful they were being. You don't love me, blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't true. I knew they loved me. But I I was so convinced this is who I was. And over the years, there were so many times that I would completely cut them off. I'd be angry. And then God would reopen that door. And then I'd cut them off. And then God would reopen that door. And this this cycle happened repeatedly. But over the years, as as they pursued Jesus, and I began to see such a change in them, and and, and they weren't preaching at me anymore. All of a sudden, they just become so filled with Jesus that it just began to spill out of them. And they were so excited about the things they were learning and the things that God was doing in their lives and the things God was teaching them. And it over the years, it just began to intrigue me. But, but God brought so many other things into my life. I was having dreams all the time from God um, about, um, I had dreams about uh, Jesus coming back and being left behind, or I'd have dreams about being exposed as, you know, and all of a sudden this transgender identity, you know, I'd I'd show up with no pants or whatever. And so Mm. God was working on me in so many ways. And he used this as all this sort of tapestry he put together. You know, Laura, there's a part in your book that you mentioned where you came home in, I think, sometime in your 20s to kind of reconnect with your female identity. You went home to do that, which I just... Sounded a bit like the prodigal son, right? But your mom gave you a bunch of letters that made an impact on you. What what happened there? Yeah, and um, I just real quick, because I didn't mention this part of the story, I had gotten, um, at one point, really when I saw the change in my mom, and I, I got radically saved. I, I was so on fire for Jesus, and I was going to be a man of God. <laughs> but over that year and a half, God really began to convict me. He didn't leave me there, and he really began to draw me out of that lifestyle. I did not want to come out of that lifestyle, and and God began to, um, yeah, I was under so much conviction, and I, but I got to the point where I wanted Jesus more than I wanted my next breath, and I finally, um, I walked away with no hope. I did not think I'd ever look like a girl again. I didn't think I'd ever feel like a girl again. I didn't think I'd ever want to be a girl again. And so, but I knew I'd be okay eternally. I knew I'd no, have no more tears in heaven. I knew I'd have a no more sin nature. I knew I'd have a new body. So I was just sort of hanging on. Um, but I didn't know the healing and redemption God would bring me. But th- those first few days were horrific. I was in so much pain and I really didn't know why but I was just crying endlessly. I'd take like one shirt out of my suitcase and I'd just cry for an hour. And um, as this pain was pouring out and my mom set these letters in front of me and it was a whole basket full of um, cards and letters that the women in her Bible study had written to me. And the connection there, um, really it was my mom's Bible study that was part of what brought me to the Lord. 
because I started, um, she asked me to work on the website for this Bible study. They've grown from 12 women in this home to um, now it's over 130, something like that. But now uh, at the time, about 75 women, and they had been praying for me for years. And so when they heard I was coming home, they were so filled with joy. And they had, so they, they wrote me these letters telling me how they'd been praying for me, how I'd given them hope for their children, um, how much they loved me. And these women were so invested in me at that point, even though they'd never met me. And um, that had a huge impact on my life. And I remember one in particular, though, because I was wrestling with, okay, there's so much love. And I knew that there was this hope that I was going to be okay. And I could see that God was bringing all these people around me to support me, but I was in so much pain, I couldn't handle it. And I came to this one letter in particular that said, um, it was a quote from a Puritan prayer, but it basically talked about um, there's this great sin of making feeling a cause of faith. And I remember thinking that if I base my faith on my feelings, that's no faith at all. That's not faith in Christ. And I had to consciously choose to obey God rather than my feelings. And that, I think that's where this, the healing journey really started. And those women raised over $1,600 to buy me a new wardrobe, help me with bills and things like that. Um, and really kind of get me started. And they loved on me and the church really became such an incredible support system for me. Yeah. And it's so core to the message. It's the difference between being a Christ follower and everything else. I mean, when we can express the love of God, I have found talking to the LGBT community when I've engaged with them and had meetings with them and really prayed up to say, Lord, help me to express your love to them and thank the Lord. I think it happened. It's almost like it's irresistible to them. You're cracking, you're piercing this hard heart. And when you show them kindness and you show them love and respect, it's, it's like they cannot resist it. It cracks their heart open to you, and then you can go to deeper discussions. Let me read this out of 2 Timothy, because I really, this has been a, a couple of verses here that really have meant something to me, and I think they'll mean that for you too. And Meg, I'd love for you to comment on this, but this scripture has really driven me in those contacts that I've had. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That's very affirming. But now get this. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's your life, Laura. Yeah. You have lived that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That has to make an impact on you. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it was really the word of God that began to transform me, but you're absolutely right. It, it had to be this twist. And I think sometimes um, we, we water down the gospel and we, we tell people that, you know, this is just about so, so that you don't go to hell. And that's, that's only the beginning. God wants us to, to be, part of his life. In fact, I, um, 
years ago, this dawned on me that, you know, in, in youth group, I was always taught that Jesus is this missing piece in your life. And well, that's true, but actually we're missing pieces in his life. Not that he's missing anything, but I mean, he yeah, wants to no, make I get it. part of his life. We are part of the body of Christ and there's a much greater purpose in all this. But if we're, I remember being so convicted by this verse right before I left the lifestyle about how in 1 Corinthians 6, it says that we are the temple of God. And if he who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her. And I thought about the defilement of sexual sin. And I was defiling the body of Christ. And we we don't teach um, young people that we need to pursue righteousness and holiness for this greater purpose to be um, the temple of God, that we can be a better vessel for him and for his kingdom. If we're just living for youthful passions and lusts, um, we're never going to be effective for the kingdom of God. Oh, that is so good. Let me ask uh, both of you again. I'll start with Meg this time. Um, you know, we've encountered people who will accuse all of us because of what we strongly believe in God, mm-hmm. that we're hateful people. And Meg, you're talking to a lot of people in your role as a physician. And I'm sure when you're expressing these things, uh, those parents that you're talking with may even say that to you. You know, you're coming across as very hateful because you're trying to help. I mean, you've taken the Hippocratic Oath. If I remember correctly, it starts something like do no harm. So you as a physician are trying to do everything in your power and your wisdom to bring solutions, physical, yes, and emotional and spiritual solutions given your Christian background. I'm sure you're applying all of it. And then you get tagged with this hateful label. Uh, How do you respond to that? And how do you then process it? It is interesting because it's hard. And, you know, I think I've had uh, death threats. I've had people write horrific things um, about me. But what I try to do is just stay truthful and honest and kind. Because the truth is, I've never hated any of my patients. I cry in front of my patients. You know, when the little girl came in and her voice had changed, um, I, I, I just started to cry. I, I said, I, I don't know if I could care for you because this is very, very painful. And so, but we have to stand up for children who can't think for themselves. And I think as Laura talks about, I, I keep thinking of children, you know, can they process what she's processing? First of all, our children are being brainwashed that this isn't evil, that this is good, and that this is something that God would want for them. And I would love to ask her a question, if I could. Sure. If you had a child living in your home who was 11 years old and came to you and said, I think I want to transition, what would you say? Well, my um, first, I would ask some questions. Um, first of all, like at 11 years old, well, what does that mean to you? Um, mm-hmm. What makes you, or like, if if the girl's name is uh, Jennifer or whatever, you know, well, why don't you like Jennifer? You know, and um, really asking a lot of good questions, get them talking. I think so often um, they just want to be understood. And that's part of that label. These kids are trying to slap all these labels on themselves. And it's really like shouting to the world who they are because they feel unseen, misunderstood. And I think sometimes in those conversations, but praying and asking the Lord for wisdom and insight and guidance in the conversation and they'll just naturally start to tell you, you know, things that are going on. And I want to give this real quick example. This was so cool. So this this particular guy was struggling with homosexuality. Not He didn't want to be a girl. Um, but I was praying one time. I felt like the Lord wanted me to go pray for him. And he was sobbing at the altar. I knew he was struggling with this. 
And I felt like the Lord wanted me to go give him a, a word. And this was really strong in my heart. And I, I reminded him about Gideon. And I said, do you remember what the Lord said? He said, um, even though Gideon was hiding and from the army, he said, you are a mighty man of valor. And I said, that's what the Lord is speaking to you. And I remember he lurched forward his whole body. Just he couldn't believe God would speak this over him. And so God had um, saw him is different, even though he had all this sin and all this struggle and God knew all of that. And yet God was reminding him of what he saw in him. And I think those kind of things are so powerful. We need the Holy Spirit's guidance in how to um, talk to these people. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, what you're leaning into is relationship and developing right. that relationship, which I think is so very good. Um, Laura, I want to ask you, because this kind of is the icing on the cake. You go through everything. You've you're married now, uh, Perry, your husband. <laughs> Just describe that because that's such a completion of God's story in your life. And just describe it for us. I, I thought I would think like 10 years ago, you never thought that'd be possible. No. In fact, when I first came out of the lifestyle, I was like, I'm doomed to be single, you know, the rest of my life. And I was like, well, Lord, I'll, I'll be single the rest of my life. But I, I began to pray over the years as God brought more and more healing to me. Um, I began to, first I was just kind of okay with being female and then I was a little more comfortable. And then all of a sudden I really started to like being a girl and I started to like who I am. And I really began to desire a husband. And I prayed, I said, God, um, if, if I can serve you better single, then I will stay single. But if, if I can serve you better married, then I pray for a husband. And I really, I just asked the Lord to bring me whoever he wanted for me. And, um, we had a mutual friend introduce us and it was it was so funny because as it unfolded, we knew very early on that God had brought us together. And uh, he's just been an incredible man. I, I'm so amazed, though, at, you know, I thought this was just a blessing just to um, to bring this good gift to my life. And it is that. But God has taught me so much about the relationship of husband and wife and how this represents Christ and the bride, like Ephesians 5 says. But also he's brought incredible healing to me. And so this has been um, just an incredible journey. You know, it's really, I was amazed like how a man could accept all of my past, not just transgender, but also extreme sexual sin. Um, As a Christian man, how could he accept all of this? And the fact that I didn't have breasts at the time, I've since had implants, um, but um, just I couldn't have children, all these things. And he said, he saw me as the new creature that God had created. He said, people have asked him in interviews, you know, if he's struggled with my past. And he said, no, because her past is in the past. And he quotes 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And, uh, and the other thing I was going to say, too, is I wish I had known. Of course, I, I couldn't have known experientially, but if I'd known the beauty of God's design for sexuality, I would have waited 20 years for this man. I mean, it was like this um, to know how much better God's design is of holy sexuality within covenant marriage compared to um, the sexual sin that I was in that that leaves you so empty, so broken, so ashamed, so dirty feeling. But to know in covenant marriage the way that God intended this, I w- that, so that's my passion and my heart to teach young people 
that God has a beautiful design for this that Satan is trying to rob you of. Yeah, and I so appreciate that. And, you know, again, the interaction that I've had, it's like with anything, a a rich man. You know we get to meet a lot of business people, and it's that next deal. That'll fill that hole in my heart. And as I've talked to the LGBTQ community, same kind of thing. If we just get recognition of marriage, then we'll feel whole. And I remember telling my uh, acquaintances, I don't think it's going to meet that hole in your heart. I think only God can do that. And you've experienced that. Uh, Meg, let me let me turn to you right at the end here. And certainly, Laura, jump in after Meg. But this cultural madness that we're seeing and us as Christians in this, it's so easy for our flesh to respond. I mean, we want, let's argue. I, I can put up a good argument. Let's go for it. But you look at the craziness, you read in Romans that God hands them over to the deprivation of their mind. It feels like in the culture now, we're at that point where we can't even talk about what a woman is or what Mm -hmm. healthy biblical sexuality is. We're like the outside people. We're the strange ones because we're not embracing this. But how do we move forward and stand for the Lord and stand for truth with that compassion that God would want us to have? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I will say personally, uh, right up front, Jim, you've been a great example of that to me um, because you embrace people whose ideology and beliefs you don't agree with, but you love them anyway. And I think the huge challenge for us as Christians is to separate what the person is doing and their thought process with the person, because the person has huge value. They've been taken down the wrong road but Jesus still loves that person. And so I think that if we're not allowed to speak to the masses, which it sounds like we're not able to do that anymore, we go one to one to one and we love that person and we come in and we genuinely show that love and we don't begin conversations with, you need to change, I'm here to help you change. It'll never work. So first we move in and we just love them and like them. Mm. Um, and, and that's the only way we'll get through. I had this happen to me with a patient. It took me probably eight years to walk with him until he sort of transitioned back to where God wanted him to be. And when he did, he, he just jumped off the exam table and just gave me a huge hug and I burst into tears. (laughs) So I always do, but, but I think that's really the key. And we haven't learned how to do that. I think Christians are learned how to stand for righteousness and tell people what's wrong and then just do that. Well, you're never going to win anybody for that. I really believe Jesus would just sort of walk in and start eating dinner with them. And when you do that, you're not affirming what they're doing. You're loving the person and to separate the sin and the, uh, the ideology from the person and that that takes a lot of maturity and time, but I don't think we're training people well in that. Well, and it's interesting because that's exactly what Jesus did, what Laura said earlier. You start asking questions mm-hmm. and let them answer, and then it develops relationship, and then you can start asking other questions spiritually. It's so good. Laura, right here, any last comment about uh, this whole topic? You've lived it. It's, again, so courageous of you. I just, I wish we were here in the studio together so I'd give you a big hug. I just so (laughs) admire what you've gone through and your willingness to lay it at the feet of Jesus and his 
healing power in your life is such a testimony. It has to be actually quite scary to those that are still uh, looking at your story, reading your book, Transgender to Transformed. They can't argue with your testimony, just like the word says, they overcame the evil one through the blood of the lamb and the power of your testimony. Nobody can tell you you didn't live it. You did. Yeah, and you know, there there is such power in our testimony. And I the word is just full of an admonition to share our story, like Psalm 107, 2, that says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And, but... You know, there's so much, just like I at the time would have said, oh, you're being so hateful. You don't know what you're talking about. I remember so many things I'd hear and I would go home and say, man, what if they're right? And I remember things that had an impact on me and seeds were planted that began to grow much later. So we have to trust that this is the Lord's work. We cannot fix a single person on this planet, Um, but God can do the work that no one could ever um, even dream possible. And I love, this is one of my life verses that I think sort of sums up my story in uh, Ephesians 3. And it said, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. And so I think that is the crux of all of this, is that Jesus Christ can heal, can redeem and restore he rose from the dead, defeating all death and sin. And no matter what your child's saying, no matter what your friend's saying, no matter what you're feeling, Jesus can overcome all of this. Wow. Amen. What a place amen. to end. Thank you so much to both of you for uh, being so bold and being open. I'm sorry, Dr. Meeker, with the hateful responses that you get. I know you get them too, Laura, as I do. Uh, yeah. But let's rise above those things and exemplify the love of Christ. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us on. Man, I was so moved by that discussion with Laura Perry Smaltz and Dr. Meg Meeker about their work educating parents and urging them to defend their children's God-given identities. Uh, What Laura shared has the power to change lives, literally. We as Christians have a responsibility to speak truth over children and adults who experience gender confusion. Dr. Meeker was so insightful when she talked about the importance of parents connecting with their children. And you heard Laura uh, share how her parents, especially her mom, loved her back into that relationship with Christ. That's the refocus message. As we are transformed by God's Spirit, we influence others for Him by showing them compassion. Romans 2.4, don't you know it is God's kindness that leads one to repentance. And I, I just think that's the model for us to follow. If it's good enough for God, it should be good enough for us. And uh, if you're hurting over this issue or any issue, uh, or maybe someone you know is in this very spot of gender confusion, I want to let you know that we have caring Christian counselors who would love to help you or help them. And I'll share more about that in a moment during the inbox segment. And then be sure to get a copy of Laura Perry Smaltz's book, uh, Transgender to Transformed, a story of transition that will truly set you free. There's so much more of her story in the book, and it's absolutely eye-opening. Consider sharing it 
with a friend who may need to hear about God's grace and love. Her testimony is a remarkable witness, and I hope Refocus is equipping you to engage the world with God's compassion and truth. If you want to help us continue important conversations like this one, I hope you'll support us financially. With a gift of any amount, I'll send you a copy of Laura's powerful book as our way of saying thank you. All right, for the inbox segment today, here's a voicemail from Carrie. Hi, Jim. This is Carrie, and I just had a couple of questions regarding gender dysphoria. It's such a problem in our society right now, and just was wondering, um, how could I help or encourage or kind of walk alongside someone that I know who's struggling with that? Well, Carrie, first of all, I so appreciate the fact that you want to help this person. Gender dysphoria is a technical diagnosis used by professionals to refer to a mental concern or disorder. It's when someone feels discomfort or distress about being male or female, however they were born. The gender issue is very vulnerable and personal. So first of all, thank you for caring about your friend. That's the first place to start. A friendship like yours may even be part of what your friend's soul at a deeper level is really hungering for in the first place. In fact, talking with detransitioners like Laura, many of them will say they were looking for acceptance, but they didn't realize they had to mutilate their body to get it. And those changes were happening at 13, 14, 15 years old. Now they're 20, 21, 22 saying, why did I do this to my body? Because they now are back to their birth gender and they're so disappointed that they were manipulated. Next, understand that the the reasons behind these feelings are unique to each person's story. So listening to their experience before moving to solutions is key. And then please point them to compassionate Christian counseling. We can help you at 1-800-A-FAMILY and make referrals through our Christian counseling network. See the show notes for details. And let me say thank you for the question, Carrie. And since I answered it here on the podcast I'm going to send you a copy of my book, Refocus. Now, if you have a question for me, please send me a voicemail by clicking on the link in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. You can help us inspire and equip more people by telling your friends. Also, like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next time on Refocus, I'll have an exciting conversation with Jay Warner Wallace. He's a former cold case detective and former atheist who used his investigative skills to explore the Christian worldview and become a follower of Jesus. Wallace shares about big cultural challenges for younger generations today and about the importance of passing on your faith. I have great hope because I already know all of you have already taught your kids and grandkids a bunch of useless nonsense that they embrace as gospel. They follow your teams. They love your hobbies. You've already transferred your interests to your kids. You just haven't transferred this to your kids. That's coming up on Monday, September 11th on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. God wants true disciples, ones that think like him, talk like him, walk like him, disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.